Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 FM in Manchester, New Hampshire. We are podcast all over the known universe. In every galaxy uh, that you might find, we are podcast. And if you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe and check out all our programs at Beyond Politics. Well, speaking of the known universe, our guest today is the sky guy, John Gianforte. He's an astronomer, director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory, and astronomy instructor at UNH. He's a science writer. Um, he teaches at UNH. He spent 30 plus years as a project manager and director and R&D and in industry, but he's had a deep interest in astronomy, physics, chemistry, and space exploration for many, many, many years. Um, he's got uh, his own observatory at his home in Durham, and he looks through telescopes there as well as at the UNH Observatory where his students uh, observe the transits of planets orbiting other stars. He's interested in the night sky and likes to take pictures of various astronomical objects to share with his students, friends, and colleagues. And he's here today to share insights with us and to talk about the Fall Astronomy Festival coming up at UNH. John, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Well, it's great to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's a real pleasure. I I'm I'm a I'm not an amateur astronomer. I don't even play one on TV, uh, but I have lots of questions. And I guess I wanted to start by asking what sparked your interest in astronomy, and um, that led you to to the career, the the really extraordinary career you've had. Well, I, I've been interested in astronomy since I was six or seven years old. Uh, I got my first telescope when I was uh, about seven. I got it for Christmas from my parents. And in the summertime, I lived in upstate New York. In the summertime, it was where I lived. It was still dark at night. It wasn't a lot of light pollution like we have today. So we would spend a lot of our summer nights camping out in homemade tents out of blankets and ropes and clothespins. And one of the things that we did was while our heads were sticking out of the ed end of the tent, looking up at the stars, um, we, we, we had some, back in those days, we had only film cameras. And uh, we had a very inexpensive, large format. It used 120 film, if you remember film of that long ago, uh, two and a half by two and a half negative size. And the cameras were really cheap, like five or six dollars. Uh, and we used to take pictures of the stars. Um, and sometimes the exposure would last, you know, several hours. And I learned how to develop pictures um, around that time in my basement. And it got me interested in chemistry. And I was really a science geek. I did all kinds of electricity, electronics, chemistry, had some interesting uh, experiences blowing up my basement. But it was astronomy and physics that kept my interest all through my adult years. And um, so it was those first telescopes that I had when I was between seven and 10 years old, living in, in upstate New York that got me enchanted with the night sky. And I found an interesting part of that was to, once you take a picture of the night sky, you can actually 
share it with other people, like your family or your friends. And my family couldn't understand what I was doing out there in the middle of the night in the cold or in, in the heat of a summer night, but um, always made sure that my interests in, in space and other science hobbies were um, supported. And I thank them all to this day, I thank them for that. But it was those early years when I, you know, got pond water and looked at it under a microscope and used telescopes to look at the night sky and got my first look at a comet back in 1970. And that's really what put me on path that, that, that I'm following today. The only uh, detour was when I was uh, in high school, I was a junior, and I asked my guidance counselor, and I t- actually I t- went into his office, must have been like career planning day or something. I went into his office and I told him that I wanted to go to Michigan State University and I wanted to be an astronomer because they had an astronomy program there. And I, and I like to play football. And he looked at me very seriously. He was a great, great person. Everybody liked him. He was the driver's ed person. So everybody wanted to get in good with him. But he was a great person. And he told me, John, do you realize that the only new jobs that are being created in astronomy are those where old astronomers are dying. And from that point <laughs> forward, the next week, when a fella came in from a local college uh, touting the uh, electrical engineering program, um, I signed up immediately and that altered my course for about 30 years. But I had a, a wonderful career in industry, traveled the world, met a lot of interesting people, got a lot of great experience, but I never stopped observing. And especially in the last 20 years, was was teaching at the same time that I was working in industry. So I never got out of it. But um, back in 2014, I had the opportunity to get into it full time, even though I had been doing research in the field um, for years before that. But since 2009, I've been teaching adjunct at UNH. And as of 2014, I've had a more full time position here in various uh, in various departments. But here in physics and astronomy, where I am today, I have the best job really in the universe. I get to do outreach and education for the UNH extension um, section, uh, which is unbelievable. It takes me all around the state, both electronically and, and, and in person. And I get to direct the activities at the UNH observatory. And I teach physics and astronomy courses here for the physics and astronomy department. So I'm doing everything that, that I ever wanted to do and, and really have not much time to do much else, but it's a, a, it's a wonderful position and the university has been very supportive of outreach. And um, we now have a, a minor in, edu- in astronomy that we offer. So it's really exciting time to be here. Well, uh, you know, hearing that, I, I think of you as a true guardian of the galaxy. And so, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, but without the weapons. So, so uh, tell us a little bit more about the UNH observatory. Um, how big is it? How, what kind of telescope does it have? What, how do people access it? And I know that um, we're coming up to, uh, an annual event at UNH, the Fall Astronomy Festival. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the UNH Observatory, the Astronomy Festival, and uh, what folks might might find if they can 
um, come to UNH uh, and make a visit. I believe the Astronomy Festival starts on the September 26th. It's a Friday and Saturday, Friday yeah. evening, and fri this coming Friday evening, 730 yep. to 11, and then Saturday, there are activities all day. Exactly. We start Friday the 30th, this coming Friday, uh, at 7 o'clock, and we have a, a, a world-renowned scientist giving, giving our kickoff uh, keynote Sarah Seeger from MIT is going to talk about exoplanets, which are planets that orbit stars other than the sun, and the search for life elsewhere and the search for another Earth out there among these 5,300 exo ex exoplanets that we've confirmed so far. That'll be our talk on Friday night. And following that, we'll have a meet and greet with, with uh, Professor Seeger, and then we'll be doing observing. Uh, with a multitude of telescopes set up around the UNH observatory that local amateurs and amateurs from across the region will bring with them, set up during the day and share their views of various celestial objects throughout the evening. Uh, hopefully it'll be clear and we'll be doing that until the late, late hours, probably the wee hours. And then Saturday, the gate opens at 1030 and the whole look of the festival will change from the previous night because we'll have a huge uh, event tent uh, set up that will house various booths and tables from various student organizations, various departments, uh, some outside companies. We have uh, Plymouth State University going to join us and launch a, a weather balloon um, uh, at some point during the morning. Um, we'll have uh, a whole series of informal science talks by students and faculty members. And uh, even we'll, we'll have a, uh, a, a special talk about the 2024 total solar eclipse by uh, J. Kelly Beatty, a senior editor at Sky and Telescope magazine. So we have uh, those uh, science, informal science talks that are open to everybody. We have a, an unbelievable uh, kids hands-on science activity booth that um, will allow students to build their own refracting telescope and they can take home. It'll, they'll be building rockets, launching rockets in an adjacent field to the observatory. And it was, uh, there are a multitude of other activities, There's a scale model of the solar system. There is face painting for the younger kids. We've got a food truck on site. So once you get to the festival, you can spend the whole day with us and even the whole night if you want. Um, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, we have our universe-famous NEFAF Astro Raffle, where we'll be selling raffle tickets, all to benefit the UNH Observatory. And we have some great astronomical gifts, telescopes, binoculars, all kinds of assorted astronomy-related uh, raffle prizes, some great books. And then uh, our second keynote something we're doing at this NEFAF that we haven't ever done before, where we've invited back um, Dr. Alex Filipenko from University of California, Berkeley, who was our keynote in 2012. And he literally blew the tent down with his talk about the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And he's here to talk about, he'll be here to talk about some new updates in that discovery that actually uh, netted the team leaders of that research project, the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011. So Alex is gonna fill us in on some new uh, 
on some new details about uh, why is the accelerate, why is the expansion of the universe accelerating, getting faster as time goes on? It's a huge mystery in cosmology that they'll fill us in on on, on Saturday about 6.15. And then uh, depending on the weather, we have a whole another evening of observing through those same multitude of telescopes uh, until the wee hours of the morning, hopefully. And then Sunday, we we clean up the festival. So <laughs> it's uh, all day on Saturday from 10.30 until midnight. And then on Friday, we kick things off at 7 with uh, Professor Seeger's talk uh, on exoplanets. Uh, there's and no admission fee. It's free. We're inviting everyone to, to, to take, a, take part in this. And um, we're really excited about it. Uh, we're, the, look, the weather looks good. Um, I was <clears throat> just out at the observatory this morning. We've got lots of work to do out there. You asked about the UNH observatory. I'll give you a, a short history on that. The original UNH observatory was, was built in November of 1985 in a part of the campus that is referred to as Boulder Field. It's on the same side of, of the campus as the new stadium is. But we moved the observatory in the fall of 2004 because of the encroaching lights from new smaller um, uh, athletic fields that they're being used all the time. But that constant use at night was kind of really flooding the area with light. So the university gave us some money. We moved the dome across campus to property that was controlled by the College of Life Science and Agriculture. And they were gracious enough to give us a, a plot of land to erect, move the dome over from Boulder Field, where it has been since September of 2004. And it's a delightful location um, near the Woodman uh, Research Agricultural Farm and near the uh, Child Study and Development Center. It's located at 16 Spinney Lane. And uh, that's where the festival festival will be. We'll set up our tents and all of our accompanying equipment on that premises uh, starting Friday morning. And then at seven o'clock, we start. So the UNH Observatory is a, is a 15 foot dome and it looks like the top of a silo <clears throat> with a removable window that opens and closes so the telescope can, can see the sky. And the dome rotates on 360 degrees. So we can look at most anything that's that's visible up above a minimum elevation in the sky. Um, we just added, just last week, we built a brand new dome um, near the existing dome. And hopefully tomorrow we'll be adding uh, a newer, larger telescope to that new dome. So my goal is to have two large uh, telescopes operating for the festival. Um, and the telescope in the new dome, hopefully we'll see its first light maybe Wednesday or Thursday night. So I'm very excited about that. And the whole university is abuzz with what's been going on out at the university site because we we've been doing site work all through the summer. And uh, it's beginning to, look, beginning to look festival ready, but maybe not quite yet. But by Friday, we'll be in good shape. So when, we talk, when, when you talk about a large telescope... Um, can you give us an idea of, of the size of the UNH telescope? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I misspoke myself. To me, it's a large telescope, but to to uh, large observatories at big institutions, it's it's a moderate sized telescope. 
I'll describe it for you. We describe the capability of a telescope by the, the diameter or uh, aperture of its main image forming element. So this telescope that we have in the original UNH dome uh, is a 14 inch telescope. That means the diameter of the primary mirror is 14 inches. So the larger in diameter the mirror or the lens of your telescope is, the more photons of light that it can capture. And sometimes we affectionately call telescopes light buckets, kind of like a, you know, a rainwater barrel that collects droplets of water, right? The bigger the barrel, the more droplets of water you'll collect during a rainstorm, right? So we collect photons instead of raindrops. And the larger the telescope is in diameter, the more photons of light we can collect, the higher the quality of image, the greater the contrast, the more magnification that we can apply to that image to make it look bigger and closer and hopefully sharper. And um, so that, that's the story on the original telescope. The new dome will have a 16 inch telescope, a little bit larger, different kind of telescope tripod, if you will, different kind of mount that'll give us better capability to do our exoplanet research that I'm really looking forward to commissioning that telescope as soon as possible. Probably won't be able to observe exoplanets by this Friday, but we'll be able to uh, at least look at the planets and some other celestial objects through it. I'm really looking forward to that. I have so many questions, uh, including about exoplanets, but um, we have a few minutes left in this segment. And I, it, what came across my desk as we were getting on to record today's show was um, an article from the Washington Post that really sounded like science fiction to me, uh, because it said heart rates are spiking in the Washington su suburbs where scientists and engineers on Monday evening hope to witness a vending machine sized spacecraft 7 million miles from Earth crashing directly into an asteroid. Um, and that sounds like, you know, that sounds like Bruce Willis um, um, in Armageddon. Uh, trying to save save the Earth uh, by uh, by breaking up the 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 asteroid that's going to create a cataclysmic disaster. What's going on? Is well, that really what well, this is about? Well, this is nothing to do with Armageddon or Deep Impact or any of those Hollywood movies that scare everybody. But the the um, a double asteroid uh, redirection test or DART as it's known by NASA mission DART, um, is actually due uh, in eight, eight, actually, when we're talking right here, it's, it's eight hours and 51 minutes away from the impact. And um, they're doing this, though so this is an asteroid, um, a small asteroid, uh, Didymos, that um, ha actually has a, a natural satellite, has its own moon. And it's, it's very small, and the, the moon, like Earth's moon, orbits very close to this asteroid. So, first of all, the two are very small bodies, and the moon is even smaller. Dimorphos, the asteroid that has been targeted for a head-on collision. John, please continue your explanation about this asteroid and what's going on in outer space a few short hours from now. 
Well, the, the DART mission, will it, it, it's targeting a, a, an asteroid pair. Uh, Didymos and Dimorphos is the, is the moon, the very small moon of this asteroid. And it's not on a collision course. It, it happens to be a near-Earth asteroid, which, which means it can come occasionally uh, within about a little less than 5 million miles from Earth. But it's not on a collision course. It's minding its own business, orbiting the sun, um, it's, it's harmless. And what NASA is planning to do is not going to change that. But they are going to take this small spacecraft whose mass is known, and they're going to impact the small moon and see if they can denote, measure any um, change in the orbit, the, the motion, the position, and the velocity of this moon that's orbiting the, the, the larger moon, Didymos, right? And the spacecraft is, is much, much, much smaller than the moon, and it's not gonna knock it out of its orbit or anything serious, but we hope to, the NASA scientists are hoping to measure at least some change in the orbit of the moon around uh, Didymos, the, the, the parent asteroid, right? In hopes that that information that they learn from this mission will help us plan future missions should we discover in, in the future that there is a, a bigger asteroid with, with Earth in its, its, its path in the future, right? So that's the whole point. The whole point is to, is to test out a technology where we use the kinetic energy of, of a spacecraft to alter the course of uh, impending uh, impact on Earth. And, and again, this asteroid is perfectly safe. It's not going to do anything to the Earth, but happens to be close enough and small enough for us to maybe measure the result of, of smashing this small spacecraft into the, into the mission. And, and it's the first asteroid direct, it's the first planetary defense mission that humans have con conducted. So it's really useful and it's, it's really meant to plan the future of how we might uh, protect ourselves from larger impacts. If, if we find that an object is gonna impact the earth in five years or 10 years or longer, which, which we can do, um, we, then we don't have to apply very much kinetic energy, enough very much oomph to change the course that much. But if we discover the asteroid like next Wednesday that, and it's gonna hit us next Friday, that would require a lot more punch and that would be a lot difficult, more difficult to redirect. So right. we're taking our first steps for planetary defense because the earth has been impacted many, many, many times by infalling objects from space, asteroids and comets. Um, so this is an attempt to start um, starting to protect ourselves from these potential impacts that, that will will eventually happen again. We just don't know when. You know, it's uh, I I I think back. Uh, I'm I'm of a certain age. I I may be your age. I may be a little older. And I think about the firsts that we have witnessed. I remember uh, the first time humans landed on the moon, and we saw those images of Earth from space. Um, and like all people, I mean, I am riveted to the sky and 
when I try to think about astronomy and cosmology and concepts like the age of the universe and space-time and theories of relativity and the numbers of zeros that get attached um, to distances when we're uh, talking about stars and galaxies and distances. Um, it's a little bit head-spinning. And 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 at the same time, we're witnessing firsts in human history. So this it's really extraordinary. Um, and and one of the one of the great recent developments in astronomy has been the launching of the Webb telescope. Uh, it followed the Hubble telescope, and uh, we now have the Webb telescope, a a telescope that has been launched into space to help us help us see. Um, further, deeper, longer away in time and space than than ever before. From your vantage point, what has the Webb Telescope meant for astronomy with those extraordinary pictures and the data that's still coming in? Uh, from your perspective and with your knowledge and experience, um, how do you view the what's what's happening with the Webb? Well, it's it's funny. The the since of course James Webb was launched last Christmas, and it took a few months to get it to its place in space where it's making its observations from because it's not orbiting the Earth, and a few more months to check out and um, uh, position the telescope and get it in its final mode where it could actually make observations. And the first image, well, there's a series of images that were taken during the summer, and the first image. Uh, was unveiled by President Biden on the 11th of July this past summer, and the images are 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 were and still are stunningly clear and crisp. And I I I wasn't teaching in 1990 when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, and I wasn't teaching in 1993 when the corrective optics were fitted to the telescope to correct a manufacturing error, but Throughout its history, the Hubble Space Telescope has just mesmerized astronomers and, and amateur astronomers and just the general public with every image that it has taken. And it has revolutionized um, our understanding of the universe. And it has revolutionized how scientists, how astronomers share information with the public um, nowadays as opposed to how it was done before. The James Webb telescope, and so I wasn't around teaching and doing a lot of public outreach when the Webb, when the Hubble was first launched and gave its stunning results. Uh, but the James Webb telescope seems to have penetrated so much into our regular general public fabric that I'm getting comments from younger students, grammar school students, middle school students, high school students, associates here that have nothing to do with physics and astronomy, um, my students, of course, that are taking my introduction to modern astronomy course or my experimental physics class. Everyone seems to know about it and is, is really interested and intrigued with the images that it has been sending back since you know, the middle of July. So it, it, it is following in the footsteps of Hubble, 
But being a larger instrument has much more light gathering capability. So its ability in certain aspects exceeds that of Hubble. Um, the, the Hubble Space Telescope could view uh, three different kinds of light. It could view ultraviolet radiation from really hot objects. It can, it can view visible light, the kind of light that our eyes are sensitive to, that cooler objects emit. And the Hubble can also peek into the infrared portion of the radiation spectrum. Um, and that is something you can't do from Earth because the atmosphere blocks ultraviolet light and infrared light for the most part. You can see a little bit of infrared if you climb to the top of a high mountain and put your telescope there. But ultraviolet, most of the ultraviolet rays from space are blocked, luckily, because they give us sunburn and can cause skin cancer. So if you want to study those wavelengths of radiation from celestial objects, you have to launch your telescope above the Earth's atmosphere, which Hubble, of course, is. The James Webb Telescope is designed to mainly focus on the infrared and not so much visible and not, not the ultraviolet because it takes a, a different design uh, for to capture that wavelength of light. So the James Webb is designed and meant to be sensitive to infrared radiation, which we humans would understand as heat radiation. So the, hub, the uh, James Webb telescope is cooled to a very, very cold temperature so that the infrared radiation reaching it from, from very, very remote parts of the universe can be detected and converted into images for us to see. So, the, and the images have been stunning. Um, it was an amazingly complex engineering feat. The rocket that launched the James Webb telescope wasn't big enough to house the rocket. So it had to be folded up into three sections. And then when it got into space, those sections had to be unfolded perfectly, remotely, all uh, automatically without any, any direct human intervention on site. And all of those things worked. Um, the special sun shield that the telescope needs to keep it cold and in the shade of the sun uh, worked flawlessly and continued to, to work flawlessly. And the, the images that the, that the James Webb has sent back have just been truly remarkable, crisp and clear and just breathtakingly beautiful. Hmm. So, you know what, one of the, one of the biggest questions <laughs> has always been, and especially with um, the famous scientist Einstein and the advances in telescopes has been, so how did the universe begin? And when, why, uh, as you said um, earlier in the show, um, uh, are, uh, it, is the universe expanding and accelerating? And what is the Big Bang? And when did the universe begin? And how old are we? And how far away are we? And where is the Milky Way in this panoply of galaxies in the cosmos? We now have these stunning images that gather light from objects that are that are that are humongously far away and and 
and exponentially old in terms of the time um, that the light takes to travel to our telescopes. My, my poor little brain has, has a lot of trouble understanding space-time and understanding how to conceptualize the kinds of distances and age of the objects that we're looking at with the web, these, these distant, distant galaxies and nebulae and, and, and exoplanets and all the stuff that is closer and closer to the, to the origin of the universe than we've ever seen. How, how do you help people conceptualize and think about the kinds of time and distance that we're dealing with in the universe? Because for me, it certainly makes our short spans here on Earth feel rather both small uh, and insignificant, but also somehow sublime in that we have the ability to perceive and 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 conceptualize what we're what we're now seeing it it's it's mind-boggling how do you help people understand the concepts and grapple with with what it means for us as humans well there's a lot of questions there. Do you, <laughs> I, know, I know. I apologize. We <laughs> could we could take up a, probably a whole course just asking those questions. Well, let me let me start with something that that a lot of people have questions about. And let me tell you the 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 telescopes are are really useful, amazingly useful instruments to to astronomers, and we we use them all the time, and a lot of times take them for granted. But not only do telescopes make things that are far away look closer and, and, and look brighter due to their light gathering capability, but they, they also allow us to look back into time. And I'll give you an example of that. Today is a nice sunny day. I'm hoping for this kind of weather next this coming weekend. When you go outside and enjoy a beautiful sunny morning or afternoon, and you look up at the sun, instantaneously. I'm not suggesting any, anyone stare at the sun, but you look up at the sun, you see its yellow sphere, and then you realize that it's a nice day. You're actually looking at the sun, not how it actually looks at that present time. You're looking at the sun the way it looked eight minutes and 20 seconds ago, because that's how long it took the light from the surface of the sun to traverse the 93 million miles to Earth, right? Light travels fast, but it doesn't travel infinitely fast. It has a it has a, a, a speed, and the light speed of light in a vacuum is about 186,262 miles per second, or if you like the metric system, 300,000 kilometers per second. Okay, per second, that's fast. That's from here to the moon in about 1.3 seconds. Okay, so light is fast. But the distances in space, as you were referring to, Paul, are so enormous that even light, the fastest thing in the universe, takes time to move from point A to point B. So 
when you look up at the sun, realize that you're looking at the sun the way it looked over eight minutes ago. When you look out at night at the stars, which are distant suns, suns that are farther away than our own sun, those, those objects are many, many light years away. And think of a light year as a huge unit of measure of distance, right? It's not a measure of time. A light year is the length of distance that a beam of light would travel over the course of a year, right? Remember in fourth grade, we did word problems, like a train is traveling westbound at 60 miles an hour. How many miles will the train travel in an hour? Uh, 60, right? So instead of the rate being 60 miles an hour, the rate of speed of light is, you know, 300,000 kilometers per second. And the number of seconds in a year is something like 31,557,600 seconds. Multiply those two numbers together and you get this humongous number of miles or kilometers, about a little less than 10 trillion kilometers that light will travel in one year. And yet there are no stars within one light year of the sun. The nearest star is about four and a third light years away from the sun. So space is big. And when you go to the Southern hemisphere, so you can look at the star Alpha Centauri, that's 4.3 light years away, you're not seeing that star the way it looked the night you looked at it. You're looking at it the way it looked four and a third years ago. And that's the closest star to the sun. The farther into space you look, the further back in time you see. So if you can find a star that's exactly or approximately the number of year, uh, light years away as you are years old, think about this. That you, when you go out at night and see that star, the light that left that star left during the year you were born. So if you're 17 years old and you go out and look at the star Altair that's visible in the sky right now at night, you're seeing Altair the way it looked the year you were born because it's about 17 light years away. So all the stuff you've been doing through your life, you've been going about your business, going to school, getting a job, talking with friends, developing your whole social structure and family, the light from that star left its surface the year you were born. When we talk about galaxies that you were speaking about, like the nearest big galaxy to the Milky Way, the Andromeda galaxy, 2.5 million light years away. <laughs> you can see that object without a telescope. It doesn't look like a galaxy taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. It looks like a small white smudge, oval smudge in the night sky in the constellation of Andromeda. But the light you see that small smudge by left the stars in that galaxy two and a half million years ago. So you're looking that far back into time with your unaided eye. And that's just the closest big galaxy to the Milky Way. Most are much, much, much more distant. So when we look at the images that the Hubble and the James Webb Telescope have taken, they take long exposure photographs that allow more light to accumulate on the image sensor to take a core sample, if you will, 
deep into the universe. It's planned, the James Webb Telescope has plans to take exposures that are so deep in their penetration into the universe that they will see objects that, that were forming only about 250 million years after the Big Bang. Now, I know 250 million years sounds like a lot, but when you compare that to the 13.82 billion year history, that's when we th think the universe began, um, 250 million years is a small portion of that. Yeah, so we're getting sounds... to the point where we're getting to the point where we're going to see so far back that light wasn't able to penetrate through the, the fog of elementary particles that kept light from traversing through the universe when it was very young. That's what the James Webb Telescope has in store for us. So let's turn, and I'm, I'm afraid to tell you we only have a very few minutes, but let's talk about exoplanets. You said earlier in the show that we have found 5,300 exoplanets. Um, could any of those exoplanets that we've discovered be the home for what we might call intelligent and I put that in quotes, life. Um, and do we have any idea? Uh, is this all about the search for other life in the universe? Um, are there many different kinds of exoplanets? I, there are a lot of questions, but we only have about two minutes. Okay. So talk to us about exoplanets. So exoplanets are, are simply planets that orbit stars other than the sun. And as of this morning, there are 5,187 confirmed exoplanets in 3,825 other planetary systems, other solar systems. And out of those, about 840 of them are multiple planetary systems. I mean, that system has more than one planet, okay? And this is just scratching the surface. Now, it's not that we, we think that there are 5,187 uh, planets. We, those are the confirmed ones. And there are a whole host of candidates that are waiting to be confirmed. So, and there's, they come in, in all sizes. They come in all, um, I was going to say shaped, but not really. They're all round. But they are orbiting different kinds of stars. Um, and that has a lot to do with how many planets a star will have is that all stars aren't the same. There's a multitude of different classifications of stars, but we know that about 80% of all stars have more than one planet orbiting them. And the fact that we only see one or two planets orbiting a lot of stars is because our limit of our technology doesn't let us see the smaller ones, right? The smaller ones are the harder ones to see, but this number keeps growing every week. Right next week or tomorrow, if you ask me the same question, it might be 5,190 exoplanets. So that's the field. It's an exciting field. It's the field that, that I'm mainly interested in. And our students here at the university are actually uh, observing them. So it's really an exciting area of astronomy. This is Capital Close Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We've been talking with the Sky Guy, astronomy guru John Giaforte of UNH where this weekend, Friday and Saturday, there are going to be wonderful activities at the UNH Observatory um, to learn about astronomy, to get together with other astronomers. It's the Fall Astronomy Festival. 
It's a not-to-be-missed occasion. I encourage all our listeners to get out and look up at the stars. John, thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure, Paul.